This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 113 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and this morning I told my muesli that it wasn't my real mum. It's a good point. Well made. Thanks very much. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I have never won my Saturday night quiz. Now I have a question which you may or may not get right given that statement. Uh, But do you do it solo when other people are in couples slash teams? Yeah, it's like Blockbusters. And therefore, I was really pleased with myself that I was coming second and third when, you know, there are some people that are couples and in a team. But then for the last two weeks, Paul Kirkley has won by himself, which has kind of ruined. Yeah, which has kind of ruined my argument that the only reason I wasn't winning was because Joan isn't much cop as a partner. (laughs) I mean, she she gets involved a lot. She shouts the answer out a lot, but it's never right. Wow. <laughs> it's National Carers Week, and later on, I chat with Penny Winter, two-time unpaid carer, single mum, and author of Tender, The Imperfect Art of Caring. And we chat about the loaded nature of the word carer and how, in the UK, disabled people have been absolutely thrown under the bus. Of course they have. I speak to performance duo Hunt and Darton about how their arts project, Radio Local, is helping communities unearth their good news stories. Jesus, that's needed now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Time-travelling Jen is back, this time catching up with Queen of Athletics, Asha Phillip, in the first of a two-part interview. And ignorance is bliss in <laughs> Dunleavy Does Disaster as we watch Knowing. And by that, I mean I wish I didn't know it existed. Fucking hell second it but first democracy is dead long live i don't i don't rightly know it's time for the bush telegraph <laughs> Houston. bush telegraph welcome to the bush telegraph screaming into an abyss but with a face mask on just muffled anguish <laughs> yeah here we are again June the 8th, and I'm still establishing the date simply to state what we currently know. In a world where China is sending an army of ducks (laughs) into Pakistan to eat a plague of locusts, there is literally no point trying to predict the future. Wowzers. So let's start here. The UK, the literal sick man of Europe, where sentient grandfather clock Jacob Rees-Mogg last week turned Parliament into the world's worst theme park. And by that... I mean, he created a very long line, at the end of which was a sign saying pregnant women and anyone with a heart condition couldn't ride the democracy roller coaster. If your MP couldn't get childcare, is shielding themselves or a relative, or was simply following the government's own (laughs) guidance, you weren't represented in Parliament, something which really underlines Mogg's views on who should get a voice and who shouldn't. Too long didn't read? It's you, dear listener. Yep. 
Fears that cramming everyone back into the Commons was an unwise choice seem to play out in real time as Alok Sharma, a man of colour who is therefore more prone to coronavirus than Mog, and more on that later, appeared to become ill in real time, like the dude who convinced us to barricade the door before he told us he'd been bitten by a zombie. (laughs) Although Sharma later confirmed he didn't have coronavirus, it did beg the question, what if he had? Would everyone in that building have to go into isolation for 14 days, followed by a lengthy drive to Barnard Castle to check their eyesight? (laughs) Let's see what the latest on the Track and Trace app says. September. It says September. Uh, Yeah, that's all I've got. (laughs) (laughs) Old statues come down, new memorials go up. That's how history is made. That was Mira Sayal commenting on both the toppling and sinking of Bristol's statue of slave trader Edward Colston and the fence outside the White House in America, which has been converted to a crowdsourced memorial wall to black men and women who have lost their lives at the hands of police. There has, as I'm no doubt you're aware, been a lot happening within the anti-racism protests. Protests which are decrying centuries of structural racism and police brutality and demanding sustainable transformation in communities. And it has been moving very, very fast. A number of ministers, including Matt Hancock, claimed the UK isn't racist. With With Hancock spectacularly misreading the room, and by room I mean country, saying, I think, thankfully, this is all based in response to events in America rather than here. I mean, I guess he hadn't seen Public Health England's report, which confirmed black Britons are up to four times more likely to die from COVID-19 than their white counterparts. But why would he, eh? He's only the health secretary. In fairness, it was touch and go as to whether anyone would, as the report's release was put on hold in case it stoked racial tensions. Presumably the same racial tensions Hancock doesn't believe exist. But perhaps realising that using the murder of a black man as an excuse to delay a report into a disparity in ethnic minority death due to COVID-19 wasn't the best look, the report was suddenly released without fanfare and containing fuck-all new insights and nothing on how to change things for the better moving forward. Great stuff. Mm. Among other causes, the report points to socioeconomic deprivation within ethnic minority communities and barriers to accessing healthcare. No surprises there, then. And demands have rightly been made that the government investigates the root causes of these disparities and provides a roadmap with individual, community and structural interventions. In response, the government has put Equalities Minister Kemi Badenoch on the case, a black woman who doesn't think the black community is a thing and doesn't recognise institutional racism exists. I mean, I can only see this going well. Look how great Pretty Patel's doing on the whole immigration side of... Yeah. Exactly. Dr. Rochelle Burgess, a PhD lecturer in global health at UCL, said, It is painfully clear that none of this data will change without action at an individual level and structural change. Our government needs to do both, and they need to do it now. And what about the rest of us? Well, here are some UK anti-racism charities you can support right now. Black Lives Matter UK, Show Racism the Red Card, Runnymede, Stephen Lawrence Charitable Trust, Stand Up to Racism... South All Black Sisters and the SARI Stand Against Racism and Inequality. Well said. So we can all agree, I think, it's a total shit show in terms of leadership here. Agreed. But ever ready to say, hold my Bible, (laughs) here comes Donald Trump making Johnson and Co look like a bunch of amateurs. Some truly dystopian images have come out of the nation's capital in the last week, 
be it armed but also unidentifiable troops blocking the steps to the Lincoln Memorial, probably the physical representation of the concept of freedom in America, mm-hmm. or be it an Australian camera crew being smashed in the face by a police shield live on air. The examples are too many to mention, so let's focus on that image of Trump, a man who couldn't quote the Bible when asked, brandishing one that wasn't his, outside a church he doesn't attend, moments after peaceful protesters were tear-gassed out of his way. What's your problem, Hannah? (laughs) (laughs) That's just Tuesday, isn't it? It's staggering that such a move could lead him to gaining popularity in some quarters of the US, but it's sadly true. People who believe in what that book contains are happy to see it misappropriated as an excuse to restrict their own freedoms. Whereas people like me, and I'm guessing you too, Mickey, who have actually read the Bible but don't believe it, Mm -hmm. were secretly hoping we were wrong (laughs) and the word hellbound would appear in flames across Trump's forehead before he was swallowed up by the earth. I would have happily reconsidered my choices if that had happened. Absolutely, I would have been happy to be wrong. (laughs) The president's jolly to the church distracted somewhat from his earlier speech in which a fleeting and seemingly unnecessary mention of the Second Amendment sounded nothing so much as an invite for US citizens to pick up their guns and get involved in the shooting. And, like clockwork, less than an hour later, Philadelphia was one of the first cities to see marauding bunches of angry white men waving axes and or baseball bats and a desire to fuck protesters up. I mean, it's hard to explain how mad, bad and terribly sad America's week was. A few days later, Trump gave a press conference in which he suggested George Floyd would be, and I quote, looking down from heaven and appreciating a great day in equality. (laughs) It's unclear whether he meant this in reference to his response to the protest or to some jobs news he'd just announced. But in either case... Nah, mate. (laughs) Fuck. And on Friday, Trump went to visit a factory which manufactures COVID-19 testing kits and refused to put a face mask on, meaning all the swabs they made that day had to be thrown away. I mean, Jesus. Literally, Jesus. Come on, give me a sign. I'm ready for a conversion. I mean, there is a plague of locusts that you mentioned earlier. It's all starting to add up. Would you like a bit of good news? Is it Prince Andrew? (laughs) (laughs) No, it isn't. Although, yes, also that. The caveat with my bit of good news is it may well be temporary, but people with asthma and other lung conditions have reported a decrease in symptoms during lockdown. There is a well-established link between air pollution and lung disease, so it is no surprise that the basic maths of lockdown leading to traffic falling to 1955 levels equals less air pollution and is therefore proving a great respite for asthma sufferers. Clearly, this is a tiny silver lining to a massive cloud. But trust me, good news was in very, very very short supply this week. No, that is good news. Maybe you could positively say that that may continue. Maybe traffic levels will fall after this. Um, Who are you and what have you done with Hannah? (laughs) More news next week. (laughs) Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we discuss whether women are funny. Seriously, though, are we, though? I mean, yes, yes, women are funny. Why the fuck are we still having this conversation? Well, we're having it now on this podcast because the excellent comedy Women in Print Prize set up by the legend that is Helen Lederer has announced its shortlist. And while we absolutely applaud the prize and its existence, it is beyond annoying that women are still having to prove we can have a sense of humour as well as, I don't know, Tits, periods, 
better personal hygiene, slightly less rampant facial hair. Speak for yourself. <laughs> I said slightly. <laughs> <laughs> More unpaid care to do. Yeah, it is almost as if I can't think of a reason why women wouldn't be as funny as men. All round excellent bird Marion Keyes is chair this year and she and the judges have picked a cracking selection of novels in the running for this year's three grand prize. The winner will be announced on September the 14th, but in the meantime, if you're looking for a laugh, you would do well to pick up one of the following novels. Queenie by Candice Carty-Williams, Big Girl Small Town by Michelle Gallen, The Blessed Girl by Angela McCullough, The Flatshare by Beth O'Leary, Reasons to be Cheerful by Nina Stibby, which I have read and is indeed very funny, The Bookish Life of Nina Hill by Abby Waxman, or Frankenstein by Jeanette Winterson. Good list. Hello listeners, Jen here to tell you about the many, many things you can do to help Standard Issue. We know times are tough and usually we will be asking you to chip us a couple of quid via our Patreon page. Which, if you do want to chip us a couple of quid to help us continue the excellent work we do promoting excellent women, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Standard Issue. However, there are plenty of other things you can do to help us that will cost you absolutely sweet FA, including giving us a follow on Instagram. We'd like that very much because we're trying to get more followers there. And there's loads of cats and rats and dogs and stuff, so what's not to like, frankly? You can find us there at Standard Issue Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Standard Issue UK or indeed on Facebook where we are Standard Issue Magazine. Also, it's super helpful if you just hit subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, which means A, you'll never miss an excellent episode of Ear Fodder and also we get some of that sweet, sweet advertising dollar. So, guys, you know what to do. I am joined on the phone by Penny Winsor, two-time carer, single mum and author of Tender, The Imperfect Art of Caring. Hello, Penny. Hello. So it turns out carer is both a simple and yet incredibly complicated word. I'm going in with a big question. You've written a whole book about it. But what does it mean (laughs) to be a carer? Oh, gosh, this is so interesting. When I first started writing the book, actually, I think when I decided to write the book about carers, I hadn't even quite realised just how loaded that term was Mm -hmm. as well. I think as a parent looking after a disabled child, I was quite comfortable with the word carer, but I know not everybody is. And in fact, when I I approached a lot of people cold to interview for the book who didn't know me, and a number of people emailed back and went, I don't understand. I don't don't think I am a carer. And uh, so I would say, oh, are you supporting your partner or your child? And and, you know, I thought that maybe because I'd heard you written about it before. And they're like, oh yeah, I do, but I'm not a carer. And that was really interesting to me. I spoke about it with Dr. Francis Ryan, who's a journalist who works for The Guardian and has written about this as well. I think the problem with the word carer is is it implies a unidirectional support, as if it's a one-way relationship. And obviously that's actually not how it is in in reality. No relationships are one way. Mm-hmm. So I think that a lot of people are uncomfortable for that reason. And, you know, another person pointed out that it just, for her, it brought up this idea that a victim and rescuer which again it's really not how it is at all and not how she wanted to see her relationship with the person she supported part of me I think wanted to reclaim the word a little bit because it is very nuanced it means a lot to different people and I think in a way we're ashamed of the word sometimes in the way that we're ashamed of talking about disability to be a paid or unpaid carer at the moment is still you know a very kind of lowly position to have in society and I think that's partly because we have a really 
quite terrible view of disability. Yes. So, you know, to be disabled, you have a low position in society. And then to then support someone who's disabled, you're kind of put in that same category. And I think that is a lot of people's discomfort with the word as well. Yeah, and you've touched on it there. The pandemic has shone a start light on a lot of societal problems, but not least that we live in a deeply ableist society. So I know you can't speak for everyone, but how has the current situation with coronavirus and lockdown affected carers? What what has the cost been? I've actually got back in touch with a number of people I interviewed for the book to check in on them and see how they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's very varied. Some people still have the same support they had before. And obviously their lives have changed like everybody and it's more stressful. But, you know, they're doing okay. I've spoken to a number of people who've lost everything. And they're now inside in a house 24-7 supporting somebody else with no support, none at all. Uh, no school, no paid respite, uh, no overnight respite, which they used to have before. And these are people looking after somebody who have very high needs and of course they do want to be the person looking after them because Mm -hmm. they don't want to not be looking after them but it's really very challenging to support someone else's high needs 24 hours a day without breaks and there are there are a lot of people in this country doing that at the moment in our particular situation my son had almost five weeks off school for self-isolating and then the easter holidays and that was incredibly challenging but luckily his school had remained open and in fact actually his school has been fantastic and they've They've had the most students of almost any school in the country. They really know that their students need it. And so since he went back after Easter, we've had a really, like, really a lot of support compared to most families because of school. But even then, without um, my other usual respites and things, it has been really, really challenging. Um, And what I've had, actually, is more than most people. And that's not just because I need the kind of breaks. Uh, My son needs structure and school provides that structure. So the six hours he spends there, it makes the 24 hours better. I mean, literally every bit of it better. He sleeps better, he's happier, he's calmer, he's more regulated. So the knock-on effect of having some support is really phenomenally huge. And there are a lot of people out there who have nothing at the moment. Okay, let's talk cold, hard cash. Disabled people have absolutely been thrown under the bus in this country and that means that their carers have too it's staggering to me that wanting to look after each other is looked down upon but carers allowance peaks peaks at a a wonderful 66 pounds per week Mm, all that lovely money um it's a joke can you tell us what is expected for that 66 pounds a week and how hard it is to actually get anything extra even though it is vital for both people involved it is so shocking and and people i've mentioned this a number of times and people don't have no idea how low the allowance is so first of all it's it's a taxable income Second of all, um, you <laughs> are allowed to, yeah, I know, I know, yeah, of course, laughable, right? It's £30 lower than um, job seekers allowance, I think. Yeah. You know, which seems just, inc- like, just ridiculous to me that it should not be at least in line with job seekers allowance. And that's actually what the call is at the moment. There's a lot of charities calling for that to change right now, absolutely right now. They've been calling for it for a long time. But, you know, obviously in the middle of the crisis, it's more important than ever. You can do a small amount of work. I can't remember the exact threshold. I think it's up to £110 a week that you're allowed to earn outside of the house. But that is way too low. Most people don't bother because they can't find the right amount of work that fits within the threshold of what you can earn. Mm -hmm. So there's also a call for the, the threshold of what you can earn on top of that to be increased as well. There are people out there right now who are caring 24-7 for somebody for £66 a week. 24-7. Um, 
And then if you add to that, of course, it's it's very expensive to be disabled. It's very expensive. I yeah. think it's something like an extra £550 a month to be disabled in this country. Um, and that's partly because you'll need specialist equipment, which isn't covered by the NHS. Um, you might need to adapt your home. You might have to, say, have higher utility bills because you're spending all your time in the house and you might need to have a heat at a certain te- you know, temperature. Or there's, a, there's a myriad of reasons why you uh, might have um, much higher expenses as a disabled person. So really, it's doubly shocking that a carer would only be given that much money per week. It's there in the second part of the title of your book, The Imperfect Art of Caring. And there's a lot of pressure, internal and external, put on carers Mm. to be absolutely perfect. Yeah, and I I really, I found that particularly with parent carers, because I think, and particularly with mothers, I think, you know, we all know how much pressure mothers are put under now, I think, within society, that somehow anything that our child does or doesn't do is somehow our fault. And I think it just kind of goes to a bit of an extreme when it comes to raising a disabled child. Because first of all, like you don't really get very much support. So as a mother, you have to become the expert. And that's so much pressure. You know, Mm -hmm. people would constantly say to me when he was really young in meetings, well, you're the one who knows Arthur best. So what do you think? And although, of course, that sentiment is great, that pressure I felt was intense because although I knew my son better than anyone, it was terrifying to think that I, who really couldn't, discern a lot of his behavior and a lot of what he was trying to communicate to me the idea that I was the one who knew best was terrifying actually yeah because I really didn't think I was meeting his needs properly I often wasn't because I didn't understand his needs and obviously that's improved quite a lot over time but we still have times where he's having such a stressful time and I just can't get to the bottom of what it is that he's trying to communicate and he can't communicate to me To be the one that everyone looks to in the room to have all the answers is really scary. What would you like readers to take from Tender? I think the main couple of things really are, please listen to to disabled people. You know, when, when somebody you love has a new diagnosis, and especially when they can't explain it themselves, what their experience is, for whatever reason, turn to other disabled people to find out what that experience might be like. For me, that turning point was really reading the writing of non-speaking autistics and really understanding on a deep level what it's like to be in a body that people treat as if, well, in one Barb Brentabach, who's an author I really love, described as she gets treated as a poor thinker because she can't speak. So for me, it was reading work like that that really helped me understand my son's experience. So I'd say that would be a huge outcome. If I could get more people looking to disabled people, that would be really wonderful. Um, And the other thing which I think is so, so incredibly vital is that we need to have self-compassion as carers. We need to be gentle with ourselves because I think what we're doing is difficult. It's not easy. It's really challenging. It's really challenging in a really ongoing way. I mean, I'm going to be a carer for the rest of my life. And I have to be gentle with myself because my son is always going to need me. And I know that's not the case for a lot of carers. Some carers are sadly facing quite a short period of caring because the person they're supporting won't be around for long. And that requires a lot of self-compassion for other reasons. But I would say, you know, if we can learn to be gentle with ourselves, and I think that really means accepting the feelings that come up, maybe not always shouting about them publicly (laughs) necessarily because that might not be appropriate for the person that you support, but accepting the feelings that come up and then treating yourself as if you would a friend. And that's, I think, I find the easiest way to think about it. If I think about, if I am having a really hard time during one of my son's meltdowns, my first instinct is I'm not allowed to be kind to myself because Arthur needs my kindness right now. 
I don't deserve to have compassion. He deserves it. And I think it took me a while to realise that actually there's enough compassion for both of us in this moment. There's enough compassion for me to have some for myself and for me to have it for my son who's really struggling as well. So I really hope that's a message that comes across in the book. And Tender is available in all good bookshops, yes? Yes, from the 11th of June. It's available everywhere. I believe there's also going to be an audible version if that's more accessible to people as well. Penny, thank you so, so much for chatting to me about this. It's fascinating. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by the magic of Zoom by Holly Darton and Jenny Hunt. Hello. A performance art duo. Now, the pair of you are tackling a new project, Radio Local. Who's going to start by telling me something about that? Well, go on, I will. I've, I've just uh, sipped in a, a bit of coffee and raring to go. <laughs> Off you go, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have a project called Radio Local. We travel to different parts of the UK to build radio with communities. So we, we do that in pre-work and programmes be- that we make before, so pre-record and some workshop, which groups they are very dependent on our partner as well. And then we hit the airwaves, usually for a durational show, like 12 or 24 hours, so that we exist for a whole day in our new home. And the set itself is built so that the members of the public can kind of enter the sheds, the making shed. So there's a jingle shed and a writing shed, and they can immediately make something that that then gets um, put on the show. So there's the kind of, I'd say, the more depth and breadth that we get from the pre-work and then this lovely, light, entertaining, fun interaction from the general public as they pass by the set on the way. But alas, is everyone because we got shut down like everyone else did. Um, (laughs) But, you know, we are resilient artists. I think me and Holly don't really know how to stop. So (laughs) in adversity, we decided not to rest on our laurels. We work in radio, we thought. Hello, the superpower of radio. We don't need to stop. We just need to go on air only. You know, it doesn't need to be a live show. How can we build this show virtually? So all the important stuff before. And then how do we get the light, nice interaction during the show? So obviously that is a call out to whoever our listeners are. So that was solved. And then we, you know, we had to learn Zoom. Yeah. Um, I feel, you know, in at the deep end there. Reshape our workshops for a Zoom format. And also hit the phone and rely heavily on the people that help build the show with us. So Norfolk and Norwich Festival, and we're currently working with the Barbican and extended to Culture Mile. And we needed them to allow us to speak to their people and the people they've already made amazing friendships and relationships with. We also use local ambassadors. So we find people, say, within like the Golden Lane Estate or the Barbican Estate itself to introduce the project and what it's meant to be doing, as in, elevating voice and being a very positive thing and can we have a chat with some of the people you know so it's a bit journalistic at that point and then we built it virtually and thankfully it worked and then we went live and instead of going live for a whole day instead of vertically it's horizontal we're taking over for you know two weeks at a time and in that it gives us a kind of nice opportunity to get momentum behind the project as it's aired and as our listeners grow. Holly I'm going to come over to you I think this crisis, if it proved anything, it proves the value of community and local radio is a really fundamental part of that, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. We were just talking about that um, earlier, actually, about how local radio has really had its moment in lockdown and it's just been hugely powerful for people to stay connected, definitely. 
Yeah, because also, and, and you were, you're talking about hyper local stories um, that you're doing. So it could be just literally somebody has good news from their house. Absolutely. <laughs> that actually has been what has kept a lot of people sane on social media throughout it's this. It's true, it's funny. When it all started happening, like the clapping for the NHS and all these wonderful things, like all everyone doing fitness together to Joe Wicks or whatever it was, you know, all the orchestras playing remotely or famous violinist coming out into a yard and giving an audience to a street, all of these amazing things. We were like, oh, it's like, it's like our art practice, but like blown up. Yeah. Everyone's doing it so much better than us. This is like, this is such a better time. Like we always go to like life being more interesting than any art you could create you know making the ordinary extraordinary yeah and it was just such a time for it it was so prolific I felt like we found it so emotional but at the same time we were like it's just better than our art (laughs) (laughs) it's like it's just that homemade being it's just amazing the whole thing's really reminding me of my childhood for some reason I don't know if it's because when you're younger like a six-year-old it felt more like your camp Felt like my weekends, like just homemade fun, trying to get through the weekend, thinking of stuff to do. And where I live, it's really quite remote. I live in a village in North Hertfordshire. So I live quite, it's quite socially isolated anyway. So it's not been hugely different for me. But what's really nice is that it's like the village has gone back in time because everyone's suddenly walking around because I think a lot of people that live here just kind of commute and jump on the train and go into London and there's a lot of people that just like leave the village every morning and go and then come back late at night and actually now everyone's wandering around so uh, yeah it's it's been an interesting shift. It's funny because what it has done to kind of different communities because I live in a city because I live in um, Brighton and there's like strange phenomenon so we have a massive problem with homelessness and the you know the COVID-19 and strategies around it was get people off the street like now yeah. um, mm. and it, it made Brighton Hove Council put people up wherever they could including in these seafront hotels so we're mm. used to them being full you know all hundreds and hundreds of pounds a night even the small ones just because Brighton's so popular and now you just get hanging outside it's lovely yeah. like you just got you know people having a chat and their cigarette and yeah the clientele has like completely shifted no one else is allowed in and they've got like this whole hotel to themselves but it's just these strange phenomenons that you would never see in in like any other situations yeah. of like re-ownership tiny power shifts and stuff that are important that you know mm-hmm. there's that I know everyone's saying it but I hope that some things hang around afterwards you know whether that's attitudes towards the environment or just attitudes in communities and 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 how everyone seemed that like they, we, we were all made to behave the same no matter what your financial status yeah and then and then some other really important shifts happened like the homelessness one that I was talking to mm. so just like these like this is caused like seismic macro yeah. micro activity hasn't yeah. it <laughs> cut, cut through the ego when it first <laughs> happened I kept saying it felt like Christmas because that's the only time yeah. that I ever walk out of my house and people who walk past me in the street would say something to me would it's actually so acknowledge, would say it's hello so or good morning or something. And the only mm. other time I remember that happening is Christmas. It's yeah. so true. And like that when where everyone, you can pretty much understand what they're doing. Like mm. everyone was talking about the same thing. Like, you're right. It only happens at Christmas, really, doesn't it? It's true. So how do people yeah. get involved with 
Radio Local if they would like to. Social media is probably the best route or via the website. So we've got all the information up on the Culture Mile website. But the types of thing they can get involved in is make a jingle at home. Like zero talent is required. We just encourage people to grab their pots and pans and their pasta shakers and their kids and record us a jingle that we play on the show and we set daily challenges like scavenger hunts and collaborative family activities which we like to call you can choose your friends not your family people can be our news so we were talking about that earlier yeah, our uh, news is not us. the news it's someone's news yeah or yeah, give us their live report and we've been going to over 70s for live reports and uh, what else can they do hunt they can go on a oh, date yeah, we're date. trying to line people up we're trying to find love in culture mile at the moment you said about older people because obviously it's great to get families involved because you know if you've got kids it's great to be working on something and a project but mm. at the same point it's good to get older people involved because it's they true. tend I mean, to it... be amongst the most isolated people during mm. this we've had the privilege again because of the contacts that we've been given and stuff like that to talk to people residents so power of radio we're going straight into people's homes but we phone them we make the you know we do the interview them holly's been sending food to key workers and having you know that time with them in the evening while they eat and our over 70s reports have been going across the states as well which is really interesting and care homes as well care homes yeah and we have been definitely hearing from the complete array in fact more from older people so far actually than families um and it's quite quite nice because that is the community and yeah. often those those voices get quieter and quieter um so it's been it's been really good to to hear what matters most to them at the moment and um what's going on this is coming out on the 10th which people might think oh there's only two days left but i'm pretty sure there'll be yeah. loads of stuff for them to be getting involved in okie dokie here we go we are still hearing from local legend laurie anderson We've got the news from Natasha Block, our final enthusiast uh, from our commissioned artist, Vic Melody, is meeting Holly Byrne and eating out. Got a food review. And then on our final day, it's super exciting because what we do is we um, conclude everything, don't we, Darton? We, we do. We yeah. all together everything we've collected like the soap opera, do you want to talk about oh, we that? We didn't talk about that earlier. That's one thing you can join in. So we attempt to write a soap opera over the run of the show. Oh, um, I love like that. A play. Yeah, so we went up on um, Twitter and we asked people to write the next line and then we're going to reenact it on day 14. Hannah, we need your efforts to get on on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah, we do. We crown the jingle winner, don't we? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we we listen back to all the jingles that have been submitted via our virtual jingle-making shed on our website and uh, we choose a winning jingle, a winning sound for Radio Local and Culture Mile. And, uh, yeah, it's a good show. The best scavard gets crowned as well you know the yeah. whoever's a lot of, scavenged like a, the hardest yeah there's a lot of awarding goes on in the in the final show <laughs> oh well um, that's that's me all over I'm going to turn up just for the award ceremony at the yeah, end. yeah. yeah. The last day. party um, vibe on the last day but if if you only discover us on the last day and you like what you've heard you can listen to all the shows again it's very exciting yes. so on the sound on the hunt and dart and soundcloud all the shows are on there both the full length version or if you've got a short attention span like me, a um, reduced highlight version of 15 minutes. So, yeah. 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 And everything, um, where we're going next, all of that is on radiolocal.co.uk. So where we've been and where we're going. Uh, mm. and, and there is a plan, I think. Yeah. Well, we've got, <laughs> we've got a few fun things. Uh, in June, we're launching a new 
downloadable PDF. That makes it sound really boring. And for families to make radio at home. So that's exciting. It's just being designed now. It's looking it's looking good. It's looking, it's looking like really a nice, good. sexy document. We're going to and, make a podcast, aren't we? Of, yeah, of so we set, send in, yeah. yeah, we set families activities to do to make their own mini radio show segment. And then they send it back to us. And then we're going to have a new podcast series, which features all of these radio shows that have been made by families. And that's with Farnham Maltings. So they've supported that work, which is really exciting. So it's been a bit tricky because we were supposed to do a radio local with Battersea Arts Centre and Nine Elms this summer. And also Merton Council, Mitcham Council in Merton. Merton Council. So we've just been like, the last couple of weeks have been like, trying to work out what's happening with the easing of lockdown but I think now we've decided that Merton's going to be in September and Nine Elms is going to be in October so a little bit later but still happening this year which is fantastic and maybe we'll be out maybe we won't well I was gonna I was gonna ask you about that do you how, how do you feel about that I mean obviously you can't predict anything but working within sort of the the industry you do what is, what is your hope for the future of real life tangible touchable events again I mean it's really hard because you don't want to do anything inappropriate obviously we miss being out there with the general public that's how we make most of our work you know our previous project Hunted Art and Cafe it's our, it's the source of everything it's, we like going straight to the people we don't like things not being accessible um, all of these things are super important to us and thankfully we had uh, radio listeners you know and there was a degree of uh, you know radio is free and all of that so we could continue that but there's nothing like hitting the high street and taking art directly to people. So our dream is obviously that everything will open up and, and we can, we can start. Our heart goes out more to the theatre venues. Who knows when they're going to be allowed to reopen um, and kind of the loss of that industry. It really is like the most vulnerable thing. And some of them are incredibly small theatres and businesses. And if they don't survive, that would be absolutely tragic. So I think because we are two artists, and we are used to being quite feral and not having a home and like being entirely resilient, maybe having some money one month and not the next. We are trying to sustain ourselves a bit better uh, and look after our well-being. But, you know, there have been times and where we're from that it suits this flexibility. Mm. So this flexing and this ability to adapt and be entirely responsive has has done nothing but um it's been a lot of hard work i have to say but it has done nothing but work in our favor so almost like artist-led things and artist mm. things maybe it's a time for that so maybe there's some positivity in that yeah, yeah. that that's interesting because we, we usually do a show um once a month in london or in venues around the country where we just get two or three great women on stage and we just have a conversation Sounds um, great. Yeah, and it works. <laughs> People are like, what is it? And you're like, no, that's it. That's literally it. There's no, there's no more sides to it than that. Yes. Um, and we're going to have an attempt to um, recreate that over uh, over Zoom. Um, and, but then suddenly the possibility came to us that it didn't really matter where that person was. We've got great contacts that we work with in Australia, Fantastic. in America. And suddenly you thought, ah, they could just come. We could actually have them if we're trying to look for the upside. The upside is it doesn't rely on somebody being able to be somewhere geographically. It's true. It just, they just it's have true, to be available. It? They just have to be able to yeah. get a bit of Wi-Fi yeah. and get the children or the cats fed or right. whatever. And then, yeah. There's such weird things going on between local and global because we've all become local again. Yeah. But quite a lot of people who weren't into internet and stuff like that have 
attempted to learn and that's made them more global at the same yeah. time as people used to be in jetting around we've all been grounded and we're being more local it's like a strange yeah yeah I've really enjoyed like I mean a lot of my practice I kind of set, separate from home life just because I have to decompartmentalize stuff to cope um mm-hmm. <laughs> and also it's traveling away to meet Jenny to go on somewhere which is brilliant but I've actually quite enjoyed like bringing a bit more of Hunt and Dart and into where I live and I mean, I'm broadcasting from my shed. We just transferred it as part of lockdown into what we now like to call the studio. <laughs> and we're like, why haven't we done this? We've been living here four years. Why haven't we done that before? Like, it's great. We've got, I've got this brilliant space to work in my garden. If I look back over the last couple of weeks, all the people that I've like spoke to in the shed and like have entered in my sort of personal space. I don't know. I've really enjoyed it. Having more of that hunt and dart world at home yeah okay so quick reminder where does everyone find you on the internet and on social media if they want to for everything huntandarton.com for radio local radiolocal.co.uk and currently the show that we're doing at the moment is um culturemile.london thank you so much for your time this has been really interesting i thank you i could carry on chatting for ages i'm not very good at ending interviews anyway but now i see this I like saying goodbye far no, away look in people's eyes problem. yeah it's yeah. really hard to say goodbye on zoom yeah. And I find it hard just sit, just having to be, you're quite close to the other person's face on Zoom. And I find that challenging as well. Because <laughs> when we run our radio show, Jenny and I really like, like, like our faces are like this with each other. It's quite intense. <laughs> I find What's wrong with I, my face? What's wrong with my nothing. face? Nothing. I just find I, I, I struggle with eye contact at the best of times. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we're learning a lot about Darton in this interview. <laughs> You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined Zoom, like, you know, everyone is joined by everyone on Zoom at the moment, by Team GB sprinter and world medalist and generally wonderful human, Asha Phillip. Hello, Asha. How are you? You right? Hello. I'm wonderful. I'm really good. I'm in a good mood. Like, my spirits are high. Good. I mean, it's it's very warm today, which I don't know. Does that help? It does. It definitely changes um, the mood. But it's my day off today, and I had to give my family a little bit of a workout, so I had to get out of my bed earlier than expected on my day off. But other than that, it was in the sun, so it's okay. Talk to me about that. What what does that entail? Have oh, you I been just, like you know, training your family during lockdown? I, I try to because they play netball. Obviously, they haven't, they haven't been able to do any form of exercise themselves. So I just you know let them join in on a few of my workouts I wouldn't like make it as hard but it's hard enough that they feel the burn okay fair enough I think hard enough that they feel the burn I (laughs) I I'd be very scared to be honest like because my mum doesn't like doing it with me because she thinks I'm mean at times as I'm her daughter she doesn't want to hear it from me Mm. and like my sister doesn't want to hear it because I'm the baby why am I listening to you for well I'm only helping you and I say in a nice way and it's hard to motivate them but once they get started they start to like it and then they feel good afterwards when it's done so I just deal with the nonsense throughout it but then I actually told my mum today I felt like <laughs> funny enough in the car home I said to her now I know what my coach feels like because when I moan well I don't exactly moan I always tell him I'm expressing my concerns <laughs> and um <laughs> when he when my sister was in I thought wow 
I'm guessing this is how you get so annoyed and frustrated with me all the time because all I do is talk, talk, talk and it's only to get extra recovery or to just let them know how I feel at that present moment in time. And that's, just, that's all she's doing back to me. And the thing is, I can't cuss her for that. But now it makes me feel like I won't do this to my coach again. I'm going to call him later and apologise. I might apologise to that, sorry. <laughs> that's amazing. It's, it's been, lockdown's been a revelation for us all in many ways. <laughs> Yes. I, I guess, like, the reason why your mum and your sister, like, you're the baby, but, you know, you've got an Olympic medal, haven't you? You've got a World Championship medal. You, you've done all right for yourself, Asha, is what I'm trying to say. And last year, <laughs> you made the headlines alongside your GB teammates as part of the 4 by 100 meter relay team for bagging a silver medal at the World Championships. So can you tell me a little bit about that experience? It must have been, that must have been fun. Honestly, well, our holding camp was in Dubai, so that was amazing. And then the championships was obviously in Doha, and those places are really nice to go to. Kind of, well, hidden, not say hidden, not many people know much about um, Qatar. It was really nice. It was different. And I've been there on a training camp, so it was always nice to go back there and because I saw them building the stadium and to see it years down the line that it was fully built. I was like, oh, yeah, I was here in 2015, and now look at it. But it was just so different because of the light show. I've not seen a competition like that that makes the crowd so invested in the sport. Because we have, like, you've got some, some conservative crowds that clap and cheer for everyone and scream, and you've got different countries where they do the kiss cams and have their uh, mascot do a lot of things. But then in Doha, they, honestly, it was it was like the biggest catwalk, I always call them. It was an amazing light show and to be a part of it was really nice and to get a medal from it, it just made it feel a bit extra special. So you also got the bronze medal in the 4 by 100 metres at the Rio Games as well. You know, there's been progression over the last couple of years and you must have been really excited for Tokyo because I know as spectators, as fans, you know, as supporters, we were all excited for Tokyo. How do you feel about the postponement now? Is it a bit gutting or I see the silver lining in it I'm glad that they postponed it and not and didn't cancel it because that would have been bigger devastation for us all because I feel like Olympics brings the whole world together it's like yeah. everyone around the world watching and everyone's so invested and just wants to watch all the sports and a number of people are always inspired by it as well so the fact that they postponed it was like okay that's fine we can we still have something to look forward to but obviously it has made this year very stressful for us because it's like what do we look forward to this year we can't go a whole season without because we can't just go from zero to 100 and expect nothing to go wrong with our bodies we have to train for these things and basically we're training this year for nothing uh maybe we might get one or two races out of it but even still like i'm gonna have the motivation to do it knowing that there's not Olympics, there's no European Championships, like everything has just been cancelled and it's very stressful. But then it makes me feel for myself, maybe I could take this time to just work on everything that I thought I wasn't as good at and just push myself in different areas, talk to my team about different things. That's what I'm holding on to. So I'm telling myself, maybe you wasn't ready, Asha, maybe you needed to just do some more things to make yourself be 100% ready for the game. So that's what I'm telling myself. I'm not going to be down on it anymore i think it was frustrating at the beginning but i have to i have to see the positives in this mm. or i would just literally go insane because the the training cycles are pretty forensically planned aren't they so you train yeah. to peak at the olympics and they're basically. horrible they're <laughs> really horrible i have to go through another winter of crying and i've just said to you just been like i feel i know what my is 
all the time on. I don't want to do the runs. And it's honestly, it's horrendous. You want to quit. There's several times where you say to yourself, why am I doing this? I don't need to do this. It's painful. But you obviously, you want to make Olympic Games. You want to make the championship games. You want to, you want to, you want to do all those things, but you have to go through the process. And knowing I have to do it again, it's just like, no, I'm not, I don't want to. But then how are you going to get there <laughs> if you don't do it? Oh, there's pros and cons because obviously you can see the, that you can look forward to something and you know you can pick up on all the bad things that you've done and what didn't actually go right this year. But then the cons are that you have to go for a whole winter of pain all over again. So that winter was kind of wasted. What's it? It's wasted. <laughs> it's never gone wasted. It's just been put on the shelf. And it might get a little bit dusty in this time, but to dust it back off is going to be tough because I've not had a massage in like God knows how long. I haven't seen a gym in God knows how long. I just hope my body will hold on and she will, you know, do what she needs to do when the time is right. Presumably most athletes are in the same position, right? Yes, majority of athletes are, but the ones that have had a track or personal gym or along those lines have their coaches but there is still a lot of majority athletes that don't have um tracks or anything so how do you train during a lockdown what do you do because you you don't as I said you don't have a personal gym you don't have a track what what can you do I've been given a few items from the gym that I use which is okay but obviously it's it's just basic let's say basic but it's enough to hold me together the majority of my training is on grass now and that brings it back to winter because you don't go as fast on grass and uh, the wind is just very different in certain um places where you train so i'm on, literally just on the grass and i measure it out with my wheeler and tape measure and hopefully i try and create a nice good bend if the bend is a bit wonky it kind of messes with your run because then you're just trying to avoid potholes as well so you've got to have loads of cones to make sure you wow. map up the potholes so you don't dip into them and then that would be another injury trying mm. to stay fit it's crazy imagine you're trying to help your session by doing it elsewhere but then get injured at the same time we couldn't have that so that's the thing that we're battling with at this present moment that's it's crazy because that would never have occurred to me I was obviously like I'm I'm not an athlete myself I would have just been like wait just go to the park and run right but I guess there's a track is totally different you've got to and yeah. also presumably you'd be competing with everyone else in the world for the use of the park basically basically and but luckily we found a place that isn't so well isn't busy at all it's very quiet quite secluded you have a few footballers or um young kids that come here but they're very much like this. It's kind of a decent size where they stay on their side, we stay on ours, and honestly, it just works out quite well. But it's just the fact that it's not a track, and we're not going as fast. And I, obviously, I'm a sprinter. I need to do speed work. Mm. It would be different if I was a distance runner or anything above 400, shall I say? But I'm trying to get as low as possible and stay close to 100. That is very difficult for us. But you know, we just have to make do with what we've got. At least we've got some form of grass to train on. I mean, we all know that exercise is good for mental health as well as physical health. And we're probably a lot of us kind of feeling, I don't know, a, a bit less mentally robust at the moment than maybe we have done at other times in our life. Because, you know, all of this coronavirus stuff is hard, isn't it? But I wondered, does it take a greater toll on someone whose job it is 
to exercise basically so it's, it's your job to be out there running doing stuff is it harder do you think for an athlete to be sort of stuck indoors 100 percent. because okay and so a lot of people some people can work from home some people like so my family were teachers they're able to send their kids work or stay in contact my cousin architect she works really hard from home she's one of the workaholics ever most workaholics i know and for myself, it's like, well, there's only so much I can do on a bike. If I was to be only quarantined in the house, there's only so much I could do. And it just, if we stop running, we lose so much. Mm. It's not like, like we can go back into the office and the office looks exactly the same as how we left it. No, it's, it has to be trained all over again, our bodies, because we take time off when we have our off season to rest our bodies. But, but this is our season. We're trying to stay fit. We're trying to stay healthy to, you know, people saying that there may be champ- there may be a competition, there may not be, but it's like we still have to hold on because we can't just stop training. If I was to stop training now, that means I would have to go on for like 16 or to 18 months of training for the Olympics, which it doesn't really make sense. Your body will just basically just maybe collapse on you because sometimes you need your rest. Mm. And I obviously want to keep training until the season starts again and or the next cycle, should I say. But it is really difficult. If I was to just stay in the four walls of my house, I don't feel I would have progressed. I would have only taken several steps backwards. And you can hear more of Jen's chat with Asha in the next couple of weeks. Why wouldn't you? She's cracking. Just in case you were wondering, although I'm pretty sure you'll have worked it out by both Asha and Jen's tone at the top of the interview, they had their chat before the murder of George Floyd triggered activism around the world. Hello. On Sunday in our latest chops, Hannah chats to historian Dr Helen McCarthy about her new book, Double Lives, which explores the lives of working mothers in modern history. And as it's a double serving of chops, you can also hear Mick's full chat with Penny Winter, author of Tender, The Imperfect Art of Caring, about how the UK's disabled community has been thrown under the bus, how being a carer also means being an advocate and an activist and why unpaid carers deserve credit, reparation and care themselves. Want to get involved in all that good stuff? Of course you bloody do. If you haven't already, just hit the subscribe button and they'll be there waiting for you come Sunday morning. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what did... what, what... What did we watch this week? What was it? I mean, I'll be honest, Mick. I don't really know what we watched. No. I mean, I know when it was called and then it was on Netflix. It's called Knowing. It's a 2009 film starring Nicolas Cage. I automatically assumed because it was on Netflix, it was a Netflix film because of the Mm -hmm. quality of it. Not to... I mean, there's been some very good Netflix films, but also because I didn't really recognise any of the team behind it. It's directed by someone called Alex Proyas. I've never heard of him. It was Lucy's first choice. And yeah, I mean, she arrived, set there, set <laughs> Dunleavy does this disaster on fire and then like walked off. Well done, Lucy. It was a film that, that poses a lot of questions. I mean, start with Nicolas Cage is an astrophysicist at MIT. <laughs> Yeah. What's his name, Hannah? John. His son was called Caleb. The little girl in it was called Abby. And I don't... (laughs) I only mention that because, of course, this is exactly the sort of film in which everybody says, Lucy, their name, Mickey, perpetually through it, Mickey. 
Thanks, Lucy. And thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Hannah. Hannah, back to you, Hannah. (laughs) Okay, just to be clear. I mean, the questions this thing poses are, I mean, for a start, what was Ben Mendelssohn thinking? I mean, that would be my (laughs) first question. Ben Mendelssohn came on and I said out loud to the television on my own because lockdown, I said, oh, I love Ben Mendelssohn. And he immediately said a sexist comment. And I went, oh. That the um, PHDDs? That one. PHDD. That's amazing. Great dialogue. I mean, he is actually a genuinely really good actor. I just, He's amazing. I mean, he's paying his rent, I'm guessing. There were several other questions, like who needs a sat-nav to pick their kid up from school? But that is <laughs> a question for another day. What happens basically is 50 years ago, a school, you know, in Blue Peter style, plant a time capsule in the ground. And then we zip forward to the future where we discover that the, the weird little girl who was acting weird, what she's left in the ground is actually a series of numbers. And Nicolas Cage, astro- astrophysicist Nicolas Cage, <laughs> his son finds these numbers and is a bit disappointed by his gift out of the ground from 50 years. Nicolas Cage takes a look at it and then tries very hard and manages very quickly to work out what these numbers could actually mean i mean i'd like to see the list of things he crossed out first is it the vital measurements of every woman who's won miss world since 1950 (laughs) no what he works out is that what these are is the series of dates and numbers of people killed of catastrophes that have happened since 1950 now i mean that can't possibly be true because there would be too many to write on a piece of paper surely but that I mean, this isn't the biggest plot. I mean, hole, that's not the biggest plot. <laughs> oh, you are correct. Anyway, so he then discovers when an aeroplane crashes and he has his sat nav on to take his son <laughs> to, to pick his son up from school and is stuck on a bridge and an aeroplane crash. So what those other numbers are are geographical locations. And then he works out with the help of Rose Byrne. Also, what were you thinking, Rose Byrne? She doesn't get very much to do, does she? She just does a lot of shouting, Abby! She's the daughter of the woman who put the, or child as she was, put the thing in the time capsule. I'm making this sound way more complex than it is because it's quite simple, but also bullshit. <laughs> he decides to try and stop these series of calamities that have been predicted, which end... With the letters E-E, you and I have watched way too many of these, so I, Mickey, I'm talking to here. Mickey, 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 Mickey. Yes, Hannah, yes, Mickey. Hannah, Hannah, um, hey, Hannah. <laughs> not you, Lucy, Mickey and I have watched a lot of these, and I thought E-E would be extinction events, but actually yeah. it stood for everybody else. Which is the same thing. Yeah, there's a great bit where he tries to stop a disaster that's been predicted to happen in New York where he chases a man who threw a train who turns out just to be stealing DVDs. <laughs> DVDs. I mean, even in 2009, who would? Who would? I just love that he also has the self-confidence that he can spot a terrorist even though yeah. the FBI haven't been able to track this person down. Absolutely. He's got a really sad backstory in which his wife died in a fire so obviously he's motivated by that he could have he could have saved her if he found this list sooner. Oddly, he still manages to make it quite a lot about him by by mentioning it was his birthday when she died. Um, <laughs> which I mean didn't need that story didn't need to feel sadder. It was anyway and then, at the end, it goes totally mad. 
and it turns out that aliens are coming to collect the children and take them to a new planet in the sky. And I absolutely pissed myself laughing at that. I did too, Hannah. I've talked for way too long. So, Lucy, you chose it. Tell me. What did you make of knowing? Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Lucy. (laughs) Thanks, Hannah and Mickey. Um, I mean, this is a classic (laughs) film. I don't know what what problems you've got with it at all. Um, No, I agree with you. Um, The ending is bizarre like first of all the, these guys that look like kind of creepy craft work in suits <laughs> take the kids away and it's just like yeah th- no that's okay oh what you've given them bunnies yeah no it's fine to go with them very very strange choice but i think from the offset i knew that we were onto a winner um when we find out that you know nicholas cage is as we said this astrophysicist terrible unconvincing dad (laughs) and unconvincing teacher now you know i am a teacher people might not know this but when he's in his room throwing around that sun to every student that's like yeah i can tell you something about it now that is bollocks kids do not react like that in a classroom and then when somebody says what do you think professor about the meaning of life and he just says shit happens but that's just me I thought, why did I choose this? (laughs) I could have gone for the Poseidon adventure. So, first of all, apologies to everybody. Um, Yeah, it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. But there's something about Nicolas Cage that I find both... I mean, he looks like... He's got the face of a haunted lurcher. So it's quite (laughs) kind of fascinating to watch him. But he has the strangest delivery. It's a bit like, you know, Tommy Wiseau from The Room. He's a bit like that. Like, he shouts at points where he shouldn't shout. So that's what kept me going for two hours and one minute. Have you ever seen Community? Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah there's a great episode. Arbed tries to work out whether Nicolas Cage is a good or a bad actor, and he actually goes mad. Well, this is it. <laughs> so there is something quite sadistic, I suppose, about it. But, I, yeah, I, quite, I enjoyed it for Nicolas Cage because he is bizarre but fascinating. It did raise a question for me. I have a question for both of you, inspired by knowing. And I would like to know, what would you put in a time capsule right now to tell people of the future about the state of our world currently? Oh, good question. Hannah. Given my early experiences of this disaster, I'm going to say toilet paper. Okay. Wherever they are in the future, they're still going to need to wipe their asses, And it may be a rare commodity. Yeah. I think I I would put in a video, the video of when Boris Johnson did his, you can go out, but don't go out, but make sure you go out. Just to see if like in 50 years time, somebody could actually work out what he was trying to say, because it's still very confusing. It doesn't make sense. So that possibly. Um, Yeah. I'd put in a DVD of of this film, knowing. Uh It's funny because there's a bit in it where Rose Bird, her plan is to go to some caves that she knows in Groton. And I have some friends who live in Groton, in Massachusetts. And I really, really wanted to know what the coordinates for that were, because I thought, you know, things are bad in America as it stands. And I would quite like to be able to give them those coordinates if, A, (laughs) things go really badly in 
America in the next few weeks or B, they ever decide that they're going to watch this film. Yeah. You very calmly called them the caves several times there, but I think you'll find that they were the caves, John, Caleb, Abby. Oh my God. It's particularly bad. The name shout is so bad at the bit where he goes to get the door that they don't even need to bother to explain how he got that door. Yeah, the door thing was very strange, wasn't it? And when he was scratching it off, it was quite comical. And the fact that that door was still there. And that you can paint over scratches in wood, which I think we're all aware that you can't. Yeah, that is true. Also, when she is scratching, uh, I thought it was on the wall. She's facing to her right. If you shout people's names enough, Abby! (laughs) Anyway, there is a little bit more at the end, if anyone's interested. It's not just the kids go off into space to live on a new planet he decides to reconcile with his parents after many many years we don't know much about his parents his mum seems to like knitting and looking out the window and his dad seems to like jesus and then they all die in a huge fiery wave from the diagrams that we yeah that we got shown by uh, nicholas cage it just was like the sun farts and then everybody dies that was the science that i understood The most baffling thing about all of this is that Roger Ebert made this one of his films of 2009. That I do not understand. Oh, that's embarrassing. That's bad. Uh, My my favourite bit is when he discovers that the the sun fart is going to be what, like, wipes the human race out of existence. And he discovers that not only is it the sun fart that's going to happen, but it's going to happen that very day. And he just stands by a window and, and... figuratively shakes his fist and says actual line how am i supposed to save the world now Uh, by astrophysics (laughs) mate i was interested in the the role of deafness in this because i cannot quite understand why they decided to make his son deaf but not deaf sort of deaf yeah. yeah but then it really didn't serve any purpose to the plot. I thought it's got to be because the denouement of this has to involve them both being able to do sign language. That has to be the thing. There would be no other explanation for why you would make this kid deaf actually explain that they were deaf. Because it's, I mean, speaking as a person who wears a hearing aid, it's great to see people with hearing aids in stuff. But you either don't mention it, so it's just normal that some people wear hearing aids, or you mention it because it's Chekhov's hearing aid. You don't, like, do this weird thing in the middle, which they did. I think the hearing aid is because he thinks that's why he's hearing the little voices of the numbers. So the kid takes a hearing aid out and it just drags the plot on a little bit more. And the sign language bit is because they do the little I love you forever thing. Which they could have shouted. But yeah, it's so... It's so tenuous. It's so tenuous. And also, there's a really horrible bit, actually, where Nicolas Cage is very... Sorry, John, is very defensive about Caleb's hearing. And it's like, he's not deaf. He's not, like, proper deaf. Like, being deaf is the worst thing ever. Fuck off, John. Fuck right off. Yeah, he says, oh, his words just get jumbled up, which isn't an explanation that a man of science would ever give. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And he is a man of science. He is a man of science. My sister-in-law, Katie, has dyslexic ears, which is clearly what Caleb has got, because the words just get jumbled up sometimes. But I'm pretty sure her doctor didn't say you've got dyslexic ears. That's just how Katie describes it. (laughs) Should we go to the list? Two. I've got six. I think only having two, Lucy, is your karmic punishment for choosing. Well, actually, I've got three, so uh, who's who's laughing now? None of us, because we have I have one, two, three, four... 
five, six. Six. Oh, we're I tying think. again, don't we? Tying. Go on then, Mick. What have you got? I've got Pet Survives Carnage. Those rabbits get on that spaceship. But I have to find my son. He's chasing after him after Rose. Caleb. <laughs> Nature, you cruel mistress. Because a lot of the uh, things that go wrong are natural disasters. But obviously, there's a big mix. Farewell, major landmark. Bridge collapse. And hang on, haven't we already seen this guy in a disaster film? Hello, Mr. Nicholas Cage. You were much, much better in Con Air. Yeah. Okay, I have old person sacrifice because they only take children. So that's all old people. Again, Dominic <laughs> Cummings level care for the elderly in this film. Thing you can't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film. Be a child. <laughs> so many traffic jams. Loads and loads. Yeah. Cassandra ignored, meaning Nicolas Cage in that sense, because he goes to Ben Mendelssohn, who's probably... But Hannah, his name's John. He's not called Cassandra. He's called John. Yeah. I don't, know, I don't know how you missed that. Good point. I'm surprised someone didn't pick that up as a nickname and then just start using it over and over and over <laughs> again. Local radio reports, of which there were loads and screaming cowardice, which the prize goes to Rose Byrne, who basically just screams the entire way through this film. Again, what were you thinking, Rose? Reynolds. Do you know what? Since you've been talking, I actually think I've got four. It's just getting better and better. So I've got this disaster <laughs> saved our relationship. Old Cage and his dad. Okay. Bringing them back together. Yeah. Um, I've got Can You Smell Burning, which is the moose on fire. We've got so Brexit analogy again. You know, kind of Nicolas Cage tells his dad, "You are going to burn to death with my mum. Please get underground." His dad goes, "Nah, I don't think I will actually." Sorry. <laughs> so give him good advice and still continues. Uh, Much as I will miss Jen when she is on maternity leave, she made so poor use of having that box on her sheet. <laughs> I am really glad to be. Uh, it's been handed over to you, Lucy. I feel like it's going to be every week. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, that was kind of the point. Yeah. 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 We've got provably bad science. Which is the just the fact that Nicolas Cage the is film. uh yeah, is meant to be at MIT as a professor. I mean, bloody hell. It's like a fantasy <laughs> film. What do you think about this film kind of being a an analogy for well, not an analogy, but so I was saying to you before, somebody that I know kind of wrote about this for their, their PhD in film, saying that this is kind of like a America dealing with like the echoes of 9-11 and it's almost like an escape fantasy for them, as in like the, the bunnies at the end and the kids, it's kind of like a rebirth. There's hope after tragedy. Or do you think it's a pile of shit? Well, in fairness, only two white kids seem to get saved, so it reflects America quite well. Or certainly the people in power. I agree that it's interesting because not only did those children get to go off and live, but because his dad was all about Jesus, it led there to be another exit door for for people that, you know, oh, those yeah. ones were going to heaven. So nobody dies, really. And it's a very white film, isn't it? Oh, it's very white. I mean, white. Nicolas Cage is very long, long white face, but it's a very white film. So, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. I apologise. Even the aliens look like middle-class white men. Yeah, yeah they do. Yeah. Like an, an yeah. indie band or something. I mean, I think that's kind of the thing about this film is it didn't really know what it was because there was a period in which it was, you know, they reminded me a bit of The Gentleman, you know, in Buffy. 
this sort of yeah, silent yeah. force. So in a way, in parts, it really pitched itself as a horror. Mm, agreed. But then it went like, oh, I'm bored with horror. Let's go sci-fi at the end. But also it wanted to be an action film, but also it wanted to be a drama. And it really didn't hit any of those notes. Do you think it missed a question mark off its title? Knowing? <laughs> well, one of the taglines was, um, well, it was knowing is believing, but the other one was, what happens when the numbers run out? And I think the answer to that is just stop filming. <laughs> stop yeah. Filming. When the numbers run out, Pretty Patel stops talking. Yes. <laughs> seven, three, two thousand million and five and seven. Have I said them all yet? Standard issue for all women.